This podcast is brought to you by the new Yahoo Finance Premium. If you're looking to take your investing to the next level, Premium has you covered. Try it free at yahoofinance.com slash premium. The internet helped make John Borthwick's career. Now he wants to remake the internet. Straight out of the Wharton School, he launched a web content studio that was bought by AOL, working there for a few years. He then hopped to Time Warner to lead its technology strategy. In the mid-2000s, he co-founded Betaworks, a venture capital firm that invested in household names like Twitter and Airbnb, and operates some of its own, like Giphy. He's here to talk about where the internet went wrong and how tech startups can help make it right. Hello, everyone. I'm Andy Serwer. Welcome to Influencers, and welcome to our guest, John Borthwick, who is the CEO of Betaworks, which is a venture firm, and so much more. We'll get into that. John, how are you doing? I'm doing good. Nice to be here. Thanks for coming. Um, I want to talk to you about technology, and there's so much to talk about in the world of tech these days. And you've been critical of what the big tech firms have been doing. Do you want to sort of just lay out your case? I mean, there's a lot to it, I know, but just sort of what's the, the basis of it? I mean, I, I, um, you know, I think in, in 2019, it's clear that tech is no longer the, you know, when I started in this business, it was, we were, we believed and we were seeking to create magical experiences which would change people's lives. I think that in 2019, tech is both the, it's the solution to some problems, but it's also the problem uh, in our society. And I think that as, you know, software, Mark Andreessen called it right, software's eating the world. But I think that and generally we on the technology side haven't sought clearly or articulated clearly what is that world we want to make? What is the future that we want to create. And so I think you can see these sort of unintended, sometimes intended consequences of, uh, of just of bad tech, um, you know, which you know, sort of looks like, um, you know, it, it looks like a pollutant, it looks like um, it's toxic, it's um, similar to cigarettes, and it's just, I think, not what um, I wanted to create in this business. Right. I mean, one thing I know that you were concerned about, just as a for instance, um, our personal assistance with speakers in homes, like the products that Amazon has and Facebook's getting into it and Google and all the rest and Apple. Um, why is that a problem, for instance, John? I mean, I think that the, uh, the, the smart speakers are, on one hand, they are this incredible innovation that represents, you know, the way that I think um, my team, we talk about this, is we think about it as a new interface, right? So think about you go into your kitchen and you can talk to this device and it gives you information. Uh, smart speakers, also smart headphones, right? I have in the same category. So Siri, you know, with my AirPods in, uh, I can speak to them. That's kind of cool, right? So I, I would um, I, I would say that there's uh, two or three layers of um, sort of problematic layers with these new smart speakers, smart earphones that are in market now. Um, and so the first is from a consumer standpoint, user standpoint, is that. Um, these these uh, devices are being used for you know what's yeah it's hard to call it anything but surveillance, 
And so, uh, you know, there's been incidences of there was a smart TV that was listening into, you know, a bunch of people bought this smart TV, American consumers bought this smart TV, right. 11 million plus were sold in the US, and they were listening to the activity going on in the room and using that to target ads and using that for data to be able to personalize experiences, but that is just, that doesn't seem okay. Right. And then in the same way, these smart speakers, you know, I was particularly sort of disturbed by, it sounds very wonky, but the, you know, the smart speakers are, uh, are driven by invocation. You invoke it and you say, hey, smart coffee cup, um, I would like you to tell me, you know, what's the temperature of my coffee? or what's the weather today. You invoke a request. Right. What's happening now is, is that Google and Amazon have gone out to the IoT devices, right? So all these smart devices in the home that are connected into this, right? So the light bulb over there, which you get to say to your smart speaker, turn on that light. They've gone to those devices and they've said, give us data when people passively act upon the device. So in other words, I walk over to that light switch, I turn it off, turn it on, it's now giving data back to the smart speaker. So these smart speakers have gone from this invocation, which it's sort of, think about it, I think about it like search, right? We used to go to a place and we used to give Google our, data, our search request and our data. And then at some point there's this inversion, which is very subtle that takes place where Google's now looking at and reading all of my emails in order to make my searches better. And I think that we've sort of tripped over a line which, you know, uh, many people are now calling surveillance and um, I think is, uh, is, is, uh, is wrong. So what do you think should be done? I mean, now Washington's finally, you know, clamoring to take action. You've got the FTC, DOJ, Congress, maybe hearings. Is that the right tact? Well, look, I mean, I think that when you look across the world, um, you, you see that in general, there's, when you talk about regulation, there are, you know, several, um, there's been several different approaches the different geographies have taken. So I'd characterize the U.S. and what we've done so far in the U.S. has been less fair and basically been self-regulation to date. You're right, it's changing now, but I would characterize it to date as being like tech companies saying, we got it, don't worry, it's okay. Um, the Europeans have been a lot more activist. They've, you know, uh, GDPR, whole set of principles they've put together um, that have um, sort of bounded some of these privacy issues. And I think you'll continue to see that come out of Europe. And then the other model is the sort of uh, authoritarian model that you're seeing coming out of uh, China. Um, where it's a highly centralized authoritarian model where you have you know, state-driven surveillance that is taking place and there is you know, sort of, you know, a massive um, uh, installation, a massive base now of cameras around China. Uh, this was wonderful, uh, wonderful, this very disturbing piece of media which I saw about six months ago where there was a journalist uh, who was in a city in China and took about, I think, about six minutes for them to find him in the city. Mm. to identify his face where he was in the city. And so this is being used to monitor people, to monitor ethnic minorities, etc. So you have the sort of Chinese authoritarian model, laissez-faire, and the sort of... I think you can see that the, um, uh, the uh, European model, and you're going to see regulation here in the States um, that's going to come out of Washington. I also think you're going to see state-driven um, uh, and local regulation, which I'm particularly interested in, right? City of uh, San Francisco recently banned computer vision um, in, in devices in the, in, installed in the city. And so that was interesting. You're seeing so it come up from local. Um, so you're seeing that. And that's sort of on the regulatory side. I think there's also antitrust. 
Yeah, should these companies and, and, be broken and up, John? People are talking about breakups. What do you think about that? I mean, I think that look, I think Chris Chris uh, Chris Hughes's post was uh, was very thorough and articulate, and I think Chris is a uh, is a thoughtful guy, and he really it was very it's very clear that this was just him. Uh, he had thought about this for a long time. Um, I I think his argument is compelling, but I don't think it's sufficient. Um, I think that just taking Facebook and Instagram and WhatsApp and Oculus and breaking them up. Um, not insufficient. You still have this incredible base of data. If you take YouTube out of Google, you still have this incredible base of data within these companies, and you'll still have many of the same problems. So, so you how would you regulate? More. How would you regulate the companies that have all the data, which is YouTube, and then Google itself, of course, with search and all their other businesses like Maps, and then Facebook and Instagram, and to a lesser degree, Twitter and Snap, even. I mean, I think that um, um, I think the regulatory, you know, how 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 you regulate is. Um, I think we're in the process of figuring out what are the boundaries because we've had this sort of laissez-faire approach to data ownership. I I personally believe that you you as a as a user as as a somebody who likes technology wants to use technology that you should have far more rights about your data usage than we have today. And so I think that you know data ownership, graph control, uh, your ability to export a graph from the social media companies, you can see these, I want to leave this and I want to take my friends with me, making sure that shadow accounts aren't being created. There's a lot of details to it, but I think that generally it's about um, giving the users a lot more power over the decisions that are being made. I think that's one piece of it. I think another piece of it, which is happening sort of incidentally, but is, super, is very important, is just sort of media literacy or technology literacy, where people are understanding what these devices are doing. And you know, these devices have empowered so much goodness in the world, and they've enabled us to do so much. Um, but you know the way that you it all goes all the way down to the way that you manage your notification settings on your phone and the way that you manage your own personal attention stream and I think that that's something which uh, people need there's education there but it's also about self-reliance and about people saying I'm gonna figure out how to manage this device right right and um, I remember one of my kids saying to me um, you know he was talking about YouTube and he was like look I can't have the browser open on my computer while I'm working because it's like having a bowl of ice cream next to me. And I keep, you know, YouTube in the browser. I keep knowing the bowl of ice cream's there. And I'm just gonna take take a bite. It's the addictive <laughs> and nature so of these things. It's the addictive nature and it's also the constant temptation. And it's also, you know, these these services have been fine-tuned to hack our attention stream and to like try and get in there and try and say, hey, you need me now. And, and I think part of that's about just you as a person being able to say, I'm going to close that browser down, I'm going to set my notifications, I'm going to manage my life in a way that actually prioritizes what I want to do and how I want to interact with people. What do you think, though, that the tech companies would say about people like you and Chris Hughes and Tristan um, that, US, yeah. yeah, that, oh, you guys, you know, you're trying to create startup companies to compete against them and Chris kind of washed out, and Tristan left Google. Um, you know, you guys are just malcontents or small potatoes, right? They would dismiss you guys. Yeah, I, I think that. Look, I think that I'm. We're sitting here in New York, and I think that there is, if you look at the New York tech community, there is. I'm seeing entrepreneurs here who are uh, seasoned, sort of like 
you know, startup two or startup three entrepreneurs, and she or he are coming to their new startups and they're saying, I want to do it differently. I can see that the things that we've done today have not actually accomplished what I wanted to in the world, and I want to do it differently. Um, I spoke to a, uh, a venture capitalist in uh, Sand Hill Road uh, two days ago, and he was explaining to me, he was like, look, I funded a whole bunch of companies in the gaming space. I, I don't want to do that anymore. I want to start to fund companies who are actually contributing to positive outcomes in society and to human experiences. So I think we're seeing a, a change take place, and it's starting to bubble up. It's you know I think it's a little bit like seatbelts or smoking. It's just like sort of there's a piece of it which is uh, uh, which can come from the government, but then there's a piece of it which is just people um, you know choosing this and saying, hey, this is the path I want. Um, I am seeing more and more, and this is obviously self-fulfilling, but I'm seeing more and more startup activity where entrepreneurs are saying, hey, we want to try and do this differently. And, um, and then also, you know, I mentioned New York at the outset of, of this question, and I think there's an opportunity in these cities that aren't just tech cities to bring together the uh, whole myriad of industries and capabilities, creative community that's here in the city, so that we can reintegrate them into the technology conversation. Because I think part of this is about, we need to change the way we build stuff. And we need to, uh, you know, the sort of, if my company is called Betaworks, and it was very much, I named it very much after the agile development process, Beta's work. And move fast and break things has its limitations, and I think we're now bumping up against some of them. Right, that's good. Um, let's talk about Betaworks a little bit. First of all, um, I want to understand better what it does and what you've done and how it evolved. But can you just first off give us some of your greatest hits, some of the companies, the high-profile public names that we would know that you've invested in? Yeah. So we um, so we started off very much as a as an incubator was a startup studio where we were building companies and then we started investing in companies. The companies which we built in the early years, I think that, you know, one which got a fairly uh, wide circulation was Bitly. Uh, so the link, Bitly. Yeah, mm -hmm. the link shortener, which a lot of people know. Um, and uh, that grew up to be a interesting biggish company. Um, we uh, it both invested and then helped um, uh, get on its feet and pointed in the right direction a company that became Twitter search engine. So we sold that company to Twitter, became Twitter search engine. And then we ended up partnering with Twitter and creating a bunch of companies around the Twitter ecosystem, so TweetDeck and other things. Uh, more recently um, was uh, companies uh, like Giphy, uh, you know, much more recently on the investment side because we now do pure investments out, uh, as well as incubation. Uh, companies like Gimlet and um, Anchor that were recently acquired by Spotify a couple of months ago. Uh, so those are some of the myriad of companies that we've been involved with. So what do you look for, John, when you're looking at a company to invest in? I mean, um, you know, I, I mentioned at the outset, uh, when we were talking about smart speakers, I mentioned this idea of thinking about new interfaces. So I'm always thinking about sort of the, the evolution of the interface and sort of what is the primary interface that people are going to experience computing in. And so, you know, that used to be once upon a time on desktop and then it's moved to mobile and now it's moving to auditory and it's moving to AR, it's moving to... So that's sort of like that first experience. I think about that a lot of how you first experience technology. 
Um, the, the, you know, extraordinary entrepreneurs. I mean, you meet people and they have a passion for what they're building. They have a belief in that they can change the world in, uh, in, in some way. So I think it's the, um, I think it's the areas that they're building in, the new interfaces. It's the entrepreneurs, their passion, their talent. Um, and then some of it's bounded by geography because uh, the majority of things that we do are in the U.S. And there's a, we have a investment partner on the West Coast, but there is a bias towards the East Coast. So you look to create a community around Betaworks as yeah. opposed to just a regular venture uh, model. How is it different? Yeah. Yeah, so we, um, you know, in the early years, uh, the New York tech, uh, when we started off 11 years ago, New York tech was, uh, consumer tech in New York was tiny. And so we, uh, we incubated a bunch of companies, we invested, and we had a lot of people just sort of gravitate towards us. And we would do, you know, every week we'd do our demo sessions where people would come in and openly demo, and we'd do also things we called think sessions where people would talk about tech and society. We'd do those each week, and that sort of rolled forward our brown bag lunches, et cetera. And so we were always, part of it was always about convening because it was a way to, first of all, it's, I think very much in our culture, but it was also a, a very clear way for us to connect with the community and for us to learn and for other people to learn by being part of it. Um, we, uh, we formalized that uh, about a year ago where we actually opened up a club. And so um, we opened up a nerd club, hmm. um, or a, uh, it's called Betaworks Studios, but it is a membership-based club um, for people who are building people who are interested in technology to join and to hang out, do some work, uh, meet some other builders, share ideas, help find people who they could potentially hire or partner with, and also uh, participate in events. And so we're doing maybe eight to ten events there per week now. So that's a standalone business that we set up. Uh, is that working? Is it, a, it, is, it is working great. It, 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 it's interesting. I mean, I've never been in the club business before. <laughs> and so and when I tell my friends I... We're opening up a club. They were like, what? Hmm. You know, I think they thought disco. Um, hmm. So very different, um, very different business, but in a way not different at all because it grew right out of those roots of us convening and bringing together the community and the tech community. Um, but, you know, uh, you, you came by and saw the space. I mean, the space is a 7,000 square foot space. It's right. not, it's, uh, it's, you're walking off the street, it's not a big space, but we've seen about 14,000 people there since we opened it. We have about 500 members, about 600 people on the wait list. Right. And so it's a bustling uh, community now. And uh, it's also opened up my eyes to some of the other areas of tech in New York that I wasn't aware of, right? There's a lot of food tech happening here. There's a lot of... Food tech? Food tech. What's food tech? So there's a lot of, you know, food-related like startups. Yes, and there's a lot of food-related startups, a lot of beverage, a lot of uh, performance bars, a lot of performance, you know, things, period. Why is that tech, then? Um, I, I think that, uh, you know, many of these companies are... Uh, considered tech companies because of their means of um, distribution. And so for, there's one which we actually backed, which is a company called Dirty Lemon, which is on the surface a drink. It's a beverage. It's a uh, soft beverage uh, that's good beverage, it's low sugar, it's good for you, etc., etc. But you text it. You text your beverage. How do you text so your how beverage? So the, how the hell does that work, yeah, right? right. <laughs> so you text, you pick up the bottle, and on the back it says, uh, don't follow us on Instagram, text us. 
Now, a lot of people follow him on Instagram, right. but you text it, and then you get into a conversation with this uh, part human, part bot that basically texts you back and said, okay, what flavor are you interested in? And then you order a six pack, and then a day later it says to you, hey Andy, mm -hmm. did you enjoy the matcha six pack? Um, and you said, yeah, it was great. And then they say, would you like another? And you go, yes, and ka-ching. That's crazy. And so it's e-commerce via texting, which is very innovative. So I think the means right. of distribution. So shifting gears, John, you came to the United States as a high school student to go to college at Wesleyan. Correct. From England. Yes. What made you come to the United States? What made me come? Um, I, I mean, I can come at this from many levels. The, the, there was, I mean, there were family issues that I, I was, so part family, I was obsessed with liberal arts education. And then um, I, somebody showed me a picture of something that was an ad that talked about sort of Americans and the dreams that Americans can have. And it was, uh, it was both a wonderfully inspiring uh, image and text, uh, but later on I also realized it was an ad, which sort of like... Well, that's, it, that's it, perfect. It, it cued me into the American dream, and at many levels it was the real American dream. Right, because it was, uh, so the, the fact that people could create and dream here was something that always pulled me here. Right, and so a lot of people complain about what's going on in the United States, the divisiveness, the rancor, um, the lowest common denominator, stuff politi politically uh, in, in particular. What do you think about America right now? Going down the tubes? No, I think, I mean, I think America's, it's the greatest experiment in democracy the world's ever known. And I think that um, what we're going through right now is just what we should be going through as a republic. Um, I think that we're going through massive economic change. I think much of this has been driven by technology. Much of the social displacement and economic displacement we're seeing has been driven by technology. And I think we are in very messy ways, which is, oh, by the way, the way it sh probably should happen we're having hard and messy conversations about our future, about economic distribution of wealth, about climate change, about all these things which I think are, you know, are, are part of the future. And so, um, you know, I think this is, the, I think the great American experiment continues. And, you know, as a, as a Brit, you know, five years ago I could look at you and you know, say, well, things are pretty good back in England, and yet today <laughs> Less so. there's a, you know, there's a great debate going on there too. And right. so I think a lot of this is, you know, is, it's, it's happening everywhere in the world. And I think here in the States, it's, uh, it's happening in a, in, a, in a messy but constructive way. Is Donald Trump good for business? He says he is. He just points to the scoreboard. Looks, look at the growth, look at the unemployment, look at the stock market. Must be. Right? I think. I think that is Donald Trump good for business. I think that. I think that Donald Trump. Um, I don't. You know. I. I didn't. Uh, and I wouldn't vote for him. He's. I don't think he's good for our country. I say. I think he's a product of and of the dislocation we're going through, um, and both. And that's at so many levels, right? He's a product of the. You know, the financial crash all the way through to the economic dislocation, he's a product of that. He's also a product of the media system that we've created and that he's helped create. So he's like, he's, he's not only pulled us into the hall of mirrors, he's not only a mirror, but he's, a, you know, he's in there himself. 
And so um, is he good for business? I think the economic prosperity and the run which we're on now you know, started way before him and it will end at some point because um, you know, cycles do. And I think that he's, uh, I, I think his unpredictability and his way of negotiating is not good for business. And what do you think about on the other side of the aisle, politicians like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Elizabeth Warren, who seem to be bashing and beating up wealthy people and the accumulation of wealth? I mean, saying that billionaires are immoral. I mean, I think that um, this clearly, you know, moved center stage with Bernie, right? Um, and Bernie. And, and I think that and I think that part of the, you know, not being American, but, you know, I think one of the things that the Democratic Party has failed to do in the last, uh, you know, 10, 15 years is to, you know, its progressive roots have sort of, you know, been eclipsed by uh, a globalist, sort of a liberal globalist agenda um, that I think that now uh, it's going to have to struggle to get back to some of that. And so... I think that, look, as it relates to climate change, uh, I am you know, very supportive of, you know, I think we need to, it, the, the conversations that are coming on the progressive left, I think, are very constructive. As it relates to tech, many of them are very constructive. As it relates to income inequality, they are, they're real conversations that we need to have. Um, so many of the solutions, well, some of the solutions that I hear from, uh, from AOC and from, uh, even from Bernie, uh, I, I grew up and I knew socialism. Right? I lived in a country where there was socialism, real socialism, which I don't believe, you know, of the kind that we've seen in America before. And uh, you know, these sta the, that state-driven socialism, uh, I think it's uh, it's most evident right now in China. And um, that's not what I want uh, this country to be and my children to grow up in. Um, but I think that the social conversations are being had are very important. Sort of wrapping it all up in one question: Was it a good thing that Amazon I hear this. was? was <laughs> I want to hear what the, okay. the big wrap-up so, no, right. question. Well, is, was it a good thing that Amazon decided not to come to New York? Was essentially um, prevented, in its mind, from from coming here? I I don't. I look. I put that down mostly to the incompetence of our mayor, um, and uh, which is unfortunate. But um, I think that it was uh, it, uh, the, I, I think in both his uh, working with the progressive um, uh, side of his party, the Democratic Party, but also working with Amazon to try and figure out if there was a way to make that work. So I see it as, you know, as something that was, you know, a, could have been net positive for New York, but I don't think that the administration dealt with it. Uh, and set it up to be that. So I take it you're not supporting Bill de Blasio for president. <laughs> any any other favorites at this point, or anyone you are looking? I towards? you know I, you mentioned I went to Wesleyan and Michael Bennett. Um, you know was a uh, was Wesleyan grad in my class, and so I pleasure of seeing him last week. It's amazing to see somebody in your own, uh, graduating class now running for president. Um, I think that, um, you know, I think you mentioned Elizabeth Warren. I think Elizabeth Warren's doing an extraordinary job of laying out uh, an agenda, right, of just being incredibly articulate, thoughtful, and um, somewhat professorial, but, but, you know, laying out an agenda. Uh, you know, we had, we had, uh, we've had a couple of candidates come by studios. Um, we've had, uh, you know, Mayor Pete came by a couple of uh, weeks ago. He is just 
it, uh, it's, it's electrifying to be around him as a person. He's one of these people who just lights up a room with his enthusiasm and his positivism. I think that it's a, it's going to be, you know, it, it, we're, we're going to see how this plays out. I always found that kind of crazy in the American system. It started so early because, but um, it's, uh, it's part of the media game. Um, and yet I think that you're seeing the positivism of like, I mean, somebody like Mayor Pete, I think has a, he is just a fundamentally positive view of America and of the possibility that we can have looking for, forward in the world, which I think is, I, I think is so important because um, I just think that we have, we have a lot of difficult conversations to have you know, relates to technology, to AI, to income distribution, to all the changes that are wrenching our society apart and we're just at the sort of bottom of this curve. And so I think uh, having a view that we could talk about this, but w what are we going to create? So can technology solve those problems, John? I do think, t I, look, I think technology can solve a lot of problems. It's solved, you know, everything from, you know, washing machines all the way through to glasses to computers to, I mean, we've done, as a, as a species, we have done, you know, we've built, you know, these bicycles for the mind. We've built these amazing things that have enabled our species to do so much. Uh, but technology in of itself isn't, it isn't good or bad, but I also don't believe it's neutral. I think technology has a grain to it, almost like wood has a grain to it, and there's direction to technology, and you need to understand that direction. So you need to understand when you look at AI, that part of that grain in AI is you have massive acquisition of data. Okay, now we have to understand what is the nature of that data, who should have rights to it, who should own that data, and then when you look at AI today, and you see how algorithms are creating outcomes that we could not have expected. So in other words, those systems out there that cannot show you their homework, that is, that's a grain that I want us to understand and see, okay, as it relates to you know, embedded biases in, uh, in systems and in algorithms, how can we make that something that's explainable? Right? How could, so, so I think technology Yes, it can help, but we have to, like anything, it's a tool, right? And you can turn it into a pen or into a sword or into a pickaxe or into something, right? It's you could shape it. And that's, you know, the that's been the story of our species. And so it's just more so. Last question. This show is about influencers. And so my question is, how do you see using your influence on the world? I mean, you know, uh, conversations like this, I think, are to be able to talk sort of broadly about the impact on technology and society are important. Uh, but the sort of fulcrum for how I want to generate these conversations, to have these conversations, is through uh, these studios that, you know, I want to open up 10, 20, 30, 50 of them, 100 of them around the world so that we can really bring together the tech community, our tribe, of builders and connect it with other people who are building things and who understand technology is changing their lives and have those conversations and connect those people. So that's sort of you know what I'm focusing a good deal of my time on right now. Great. John Borthwick, CEO of Betaworks, thanks so much for coming by. It's a pleasure. I'm Andy Serwer. You've been watching Influencers. We'll see you next time.
Thanks for listening to Influencers. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And follow Yahoo Finance on Twitter at Yahoo Finance and at Sirwer.